Amen. Thank you. We welcome you today. God bless you. Thank you for being here. If you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to join us in a study in Acts chapter 7. Uh, we welcome you today, all of you that are here personally, accounted for bodily, and many of you are watching us online through our, our Facebook live stream and our Twitter and our YouTube, and so God bless you guys for watching us. I watched last week uh, after I got home on Sunday afternoon, there were people all the way from Spain to Virginia worshiping with us at Great Hills Baptist Church uh, last Sunday. So we do welcome you. If you are watching on Facebook Live, go ahead and press your share button, and that way everybody and all your friends will know that you're worshiping with us at Great Hills, and maybe they can join in uh, with us. My, 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 modern technology. Isn't it amazing? Uh, Facebook Live share. All right, great. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 7. My name is Danny, by the way. I'm pastor here at Great Hills Baptist Church. Thank you, David Winkler and Orchestra. You've left, but I would thank you personally, but thank you so much. And Corey and guys, thank you all so much for leading us. <clears throat> Wonderful time of praise and worship. And our guest, as Trey said a moment ago, we're so glad that you're here today. Wow, thank you. Thank you for visiting us. And in your worship guide, there is a little registration card, as he mentioned. We want to get to know you. If you'd be so kind to fill that out, jot it down, and bring it to Ashley and me. We'll be here in the Welcome Center. We'd love to meet you. I'd love to give you one of the books that we've written, just a, a, a way to say thank you, thank you uh, for being here uh, today. So uh, we have been, since the first of the year, been studying in the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 7 today. And the title of the message is, Don't Miss God. Whatever you do, you can miss a lot of things, you can miss a lot of appointments, you can even miss a lot of people, but by all means... Don't miss the most important person in your life, and that would be the Lord God Almighty. And so we're in Acts chapter 7. I'm going to read in verses 17 through 36. And today's message, we're going to pick up where we left off last time. This is a message that Stephen, he gave before the Sanhedrin on that day around A.D. 34. Now, the context is really fascinating. Stephen is a deacon. He is a active, serving participant in the church there at Jerusalem. And he's a, as I said, he's a deacon, he's a leader, and God is using him powerfully. The Bible says he is a man full of wisdom, full of faith, full of courage, full of power, but preeminently he is a man that is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what he does, well, he has been accused of the highest treason, the highest crime in Israel, and that would be to blaspheme God. I mean, you could literally be put to death through blasphemy. They said, Stephen has blasphemed God, Moses, the temple, and the law. Now, that is a pretty serious accusation against this man. Now, what he does is he stands before the Sanhedrin. He's greatly outnumbered, by the way, 70 to 1. You say, well, what are the odds of him prevailing? There are 70 religious leaders and scholars and scribes of the law against this one single solitary follower of Jesus Christ. And so he is going to give a very powerful defense for what he believes. And he's going to masterfully prove that far from, far from disavowing or disobeying or committing some egregious crime against God or Moses or Abraham or Joseph or David or the law or the temple and all of Judaism combined. Instead of doing that, in fact, he stands in the tradition of the genuinely faithful of God. 
those who trust God, those who really believe God when God says what God says. And so what he's going to do in in a very powerful stroke of genius, he's going to turn the tables on them. And in the midst of his apologetic, his defense, it becomes a polemic. It becomes an accusation. and And basically what he's going to say is, no, you don't understand. I have not committed this egregious crime against God, but you have. And when he does that, oh, it gets incredibly interesting. And so as we read the text today, please remember, keep in mind that this is a speech given by Stephen where he is going to give a sermon or a speech that is going to recount the blessings and the favor of God in the Old Testament. He knows his Old Testament. He will give us a beautiful exposition of the life of Abraham and Joseph, and today he's going to tell us so much about Moses. Moses, in, in, I mean, in such a cogent, concise, clear way, he's going to take the Sanhedrin through Old Testament 101, and I can just see them, I can see them in their pompous and their piety with their arms crossed, crossed stroking that long, pharisaical beard going, how dare you? How dare you teach us because we are the teachers of all of Israel. Now, by the way, these are the same people who condemned and had Jesus Christ crucified just a few months earlier. The same people, by the way, who has beaten the 12 apostles. These same people are ready to exterminate, eliminate completely any residue of this newfound religion or sect called followers of Christ or Christians. And by the way, that's how they referred to them in a very derogatory, really a derision kind of way. Oh, you're Christian. <laughs> you're Christians, right? You follow Christ. You are little Christ. That's who you are. And so they were trying with all of their might, all of their power to absolutely extricate and remove every residue of Christianity so that they could get back to religion as usual, to Judaism as they know it. It becomes obvious as we read his speech that you cannot speak in such honorable and glowing terms about Abraham and Joseph and Moses and simultaneously be guilty of being a blasphemer. And so I want you to hear this as I read his speech to you today. It's uh, Acts chapter 7, and I'm again in verse 17, and I think you could tell I'm I'm pretty fired up about this message. So here we go, uh, verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Another king arose who did not know Joseph. Now, remember, Stephen is speaking to the Sanhedrin. He's given them a history lesson of Old Testament history to prove his point that he is not a blasphemer. In fact, he loves God. He loves the God of the Jews. He loves the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and David, and all the patriarchs, and all the prophets, and all those kings of Israel of old. No, he cannot speak so glowingly and approvingly, and yet simultaneously be a blasphemer, and he eloquently demonstrates this. This man, this Pharaoh, verse 19, dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Y'all remember that? You know what he's talking about? 
when Pharaoh said all the male children, all the babies really, that are born to the slaves, to the Jewish people in Egypt, they must be cut off, they must be killed. And so Moses' parents, remember this? Moses' parents created this little, <laughs> little miniature boat, if you will, and they placed this little baby in the Nile River and pushed him out. Because they said, this is our only hope because if he stays in our home, he will be executed. And sure enough, as little baby Moses is floating down the Nile, none other than Pharaoh's daughter scoops him up, takes him home and raises this child as her own. Remember that? Now, by the way, Stephen assumes that you remember that because he's not, he's gonna, he's not gonna take a whole lot of time and bring you up to speed. He is, he is speaking to people, by the way, who know precisely what he's saying. They know their Old Testament. They know their history, and as many of you do as well. But I'm going to try to give some interpretive statements as we go along because some of you had not read your Old Testament in a little while, and that's okay. All right. At this time, Moses was born, and he was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, here we go, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. By the way, how can you brag on Moses and say Moses is mighty in deed and word and simultaneously blaspheme Moses? See, it's very inconsistent. It's incongruent. It's impossible. And so Stephen is given his defense, church. He's, he's telling the Sanhedrin people, no, no, you don't understand. I love Moses. I love our forefathers. I don't, I don't know why you people think I'm, I'm some criminal that you would try me as a criminal. No, not at all. Now, when he was 40 years old, talking about Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And verse 24 says, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him. Remember Charlton Heston when he killed the guy in the Ten Commandments? Okay, good. I know I'm dating myself a little bit, but this is all on major motion picture, right? He, Moses, defended and avenged his Israeli friend who was oppressed, and Moses struck down the Egyptian. For Moses supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. Oh, no, Great Hills, please watch this. When Stephen says these next few words, I think there was not only a holy hush, but an oh my among the Sanhedrin. Because when he says they did not understand, what he is saying is, in Moses' day, the Israelites did not see, they couldn't understand that God was raising up Moses to be a deliverer, somebody who would take them out of Egyptian captivity and bondage and bring them into the promised land just like you don't understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for you, who arose from the dead, and He wants you to bring you not out of Egyptian captivity, but something far greater. He wants you to bring you out of the depravity of sin into heaven. That's what He's doing. Masterful peace here. I mean, he has given them a speech that it's going to cause them to not rise up and call him blessed, but they're going to rise up and kill him. And the next day, Moses appeared to two of them as they were fighting. And Moses tried to reconcile them. And he said, men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? 
But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed Moses away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Just like they pushed Jesus away. Who are you? You're just a carpenter. You're just a son born out of wedlock. Who are you to say that you're the king of Israel and they push, they remove Jesus Christ out of their midst just like they did Moses of old? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then when Moses heard that, he fled. Remember, this is all in the book of Exodus. It's amazing. Stephen is given the Reader's Digest condensed version of the book of Exodus within a few, in a few sentences. It's amazing. I wish I had that gift, but I don't. It takes me a lot longer to say what others can say in a brief period of time. You got that, amen. <laughs> One person who got that laugh. Then at this saying, Moses fled, and he became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. By the way, Moses now is 80 because it says when 40 years had passed, he was 40 when he left Egypt. He stayed on the backside of an arid, dry land of Midian in a desert, and now he's 80 years of age, and the angel of the Lord. Many people believe this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the second person of the Godhead. Notice the angel, the A, is capitalized. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush. Remember this? Does anybody remember this? This is the Old Testament. This is Moses, and he sees this bush that is burning, and yet it is not consumed in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Now Moses saw it, and he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am. Moses, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled, and he dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet, for the place, Moses, where you stand is, what is it, church? holy ground. Amen. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I've come down. Mm, mm -mm. Does anybody see any, any re resemblance here, what's going on? God came down, and He has spoken to Moses the Deliverer, and Jesus Christ has come down to speak to his people to deliver them out of sin. But I've heard their groaning, I've come down to deliver them, and now, come Moses, I'm going to send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? The one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them, he brought them out after he had shown, anybody, you with me? Jesus did many mighty miracles and signs and wonders, as did Moses in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, <clears throat> and in the wilderness for 40 years. So what we have here is this masterful piece of Old Testament history, but it's couched and it's phrased in such a way that it could not be lost on the Sanhedrin. See, Stephen is a man full of, I think it's Luke 11, 11 or Luke 12, 11, where Jesus said, do not fear 
when they bring you before the council. Do not be worried about what you will say, because it will not be you speaking. It will be the Holy Spirit speaking through you, and that's precisely what we're seeing in this speech. Now, the speech goes all the way toward the end of chapter 7, but we're going to stop here, and we'll pick up in verse 37 next time. But there are some things I want to just glean with you from this message of Stephen. And as you listen, I just pray that you will hear another voice beside my voice speaking today. I've heard that the greatest preaching is when you hear another voice, that you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, not, not my voice, but you hear the Holy Spirit through me as the Word of God is being presented, as the Word of God is being preached today at Great Hills Baptist Church, not only here, but all over through the internet and through live stream, that you would listen to what the voice of the Spirit. Now, there's some things I want to share with you because they spoke to me so profoundly. And I want to step out, if I can, for just a moment. I know we're in this context of defense. I know we're in this context of Stephen, Sanhedrin. And I, I want you just to draw away with me some principles that, that God has revealed to me. And I want to share these with you from His Word about pain. Can I preach to you a sermon for a few minutes about the purposes of pain? Because as I was reading through Stephen's sermon and I was thinking about the Old Testament, I was watching these parallels as God uses pain in the lives of His people to bring about His mighty work. And, and by the way, when I say pain, I'm talking about literally genuine pain, the pain that Jesus endured on the cross before His resurrection. Stay with me. The pain that Moses endured, the rejection and the difficulty before he leads the people of God right on the precipice of the promise. The pain that Joseph endured when his own blood brothers threw him into a pit to say, be gone with us, we don't have anything to do with you. And before he goes to the palace, Joseph must first endure the pain. Abraham, Abraham, I want you to leave your father. Leave the Mesopotamian land, the land of the earth, the Chaldeans, and I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. But God, I don't know this place. God, all I know are these people. But trust me, because after the pain and the difficulty, glory to God, He always comes through. And by the way, you are not exempt from this. I am not exempt from this. You say, well, wait a minute. I don't, I don't know if I like this. I'm going to vote. You don't get a vote. This is not a de democratic vote against this. You don't get a vote. This is God's modus operandi. This is God's mode of operation, that He takes pain and He allows you to go through the crucible of pain so that He can craft you and shape you so that you're ready to do His will. And Stephen, talking about pain, Stephen is about to be pelted with stones. He'd literally be stoned to death. And right after, you're talking about being in a pit, as he is being stoned, he looks up and he sees Jesus. And after he is killed, he goes right into the presence of God. So here's what I want to share with you about pain. The first thing is this. God uses pain for his purposes. If you're taking notes in your, in your outline there, God uses pain for his purposes. When you go back to Exodus and you go back to the Israelites, slavery and infanticide. That's a fancy word for killing babies. 
Slavery. The people of God were in bondage and slavery for how many years? Anybody? 400 years. Now you say, wow, that's pretty hard. Yes, it is. But listen to this. Slavery and infanticide and difficulty and pain in Egypt, had they not encountered that, they never would have wanted to get out of Egypt and go to be where God wants them to be. Are y'all seeing that? Are you following this? That God was using the pain and God was using the suffering to create a sense of being unsettled so that they're not comfortable in Egypt. This is not our home because if everything was rosy and blessed and, and everything was prosperous and good in Egypt, then there would be no reason to get out of Egypt. But God is like, I'm going to use this pain. I'm going to use this suffering because I'm going to lift you up to a higher, holier level of living. And that's what he does in the life of Israel. The first thing under this God uses pain is pain is the platform from which God catapults us on to greater or higher paths. Let me say it again. Pain is the platform from which God catapults, pushes us up, to greater paths. Moses, my, my, my. Talking about pain. I mean, first of all, he, he's stripped away from his own mom and dad as a baby, and he's raised at the court of Pharaoh. And at 40 years of age, he did what he thought was the right thing to do to defend his brother. Next thing you know, I mean, he's being accused, being hated, and he's running to Midian. And can you imagine Moses at 80 years of age with his wife and two kids going, life is okay. I'm, I'm just camping out here in Midian, way, way, way far from Egypt. Man, I miss my people. God bless them. Lord, please help Israel. I know they're still in slavery. I know they're in bondage, but I tried to help, and that did not go very, very well. So I quit. I quit. And I'm just going to leave them people over there, and Lord, it's going to be me and you in the, in the desert, all right? And that's just going to be fine until God comes and says, excuse me, that's not how this thing's going down. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? And God is really interesting. You can't hide from him. You say, well, I'm 80 years old, brother, daddy. I'm on my way to glory. I ain't got nothing else to do but go to glory. And God says, no, not so fast. As Lee Corso says, not so fast, my friend. I got something for you to do. I want you to leave, and I want you to go back to Egypt. You're talking about a crisis of faith. I mean, you're talking about pain. I don't speak very good, God. You got the wrong guy. Ask Aaron, ask anybody else, but please don't ask me. Can you feel the guttural angst, the, the pain of Moses? But can I submit to you today, before the, before the breakthrough, before the, the exodus, there's the pain and the suffering and the captivity of Egypt. Vincent Van Gogh, I know he had no idea. He had no idea what he was doing. As he was in an insane asylum in France, he's at the end of his life, and, and basically he is incarcerated in an insane asylum. Today we call them psychiatric wards, but back then they didn't have that fancy term for it. They're just saying in the 1800s, we're, we're, putting, you in the, we're putting you where we put crazy people. Because you have lost your ever-loving mind. You've tried to kill yourself. You're not speaking clearly. And so Vincent Van Gogh is in an insane asylum in Bard Castle, if you will. And he looks out to the landscape and he paints the starry night. Come on. 
The Starry Night today is in the Modern Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA, in New York City. It was there just a couple of years ago, and I just stood there and I watched as I was just thinking about the life of Vincent Van Gogh, as I'm looking at a painting worth, I'm glad you're sitting down, $100 million. This crazy man had no idea that in the crucible of his pain and his suffering that God was going to do an amazing work through him that all of us would be blessed for it. You can look at it on the internet. It's amazing. There's a church. There's the landscape. There's these stars that are just glistening in the sky. This beautiful $100 million painting. Hey, he had no idea whatsoever. All he could see was the hurt, the misunderstanding, the, the agony. But God, God uses pain as the plan. <laughs> so, it's so amazing. As the platform to catapult to C.S. Lewis. And by the way, Alistair McGrath's biography on C.S. Lewis, it's outstanding if you're interested. It's not McGrath, it's uh, Metaxas. Is that right? I think it's Eric Metaxas who wrote the biography on C.S. Lewis. Now I'm confused. I'll look it up for you, but anyhow, C.S. Lewis, y'all remember him. He wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And then his wife got cancer and died, and he almost lost his faith. And then he wrote another book called A Grief Observed. The first one, The Problem of Pain, is a very theoretical, theological expose on theodicy. It's very eloquent and very powerful, but A Grief Observed? After his wife, a young wife of 40 years of age, dies of cancer, I mean, it, it rocks his world. And yet through that, he's able to write a grief observed, and he's able to give us this quote. God speaks to us through all of life, but God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world is pain. It's pain. It's suffering. The next thing I want you to listen with me as we walk through Stephen's sermon, as we look through the Old Testament, pain is the severest before the breakthrough of God. I, I, I'm so happy to share this with you. The nightingale, she sings her sweetest song right on the brink of dawn. The, the night is the darkest right before the sun breaks through the clouds. Prior to the Exodus, the children of Israel are su suffering horribly under Pharaoh's heavy hand. In fact, if you go back to your text of Acts 7, verse 19, it says that Pharaoh dealt treacherously with Israel. And the Greek word there, translated treacherously, it's interesting. It has the root word Sophia in it. Sophia means wisdom. But in this case, it means subtle crafty cruelty. That's how Pharaoh dealt with Israel. And then it says he dealt with them in a kaku way. It's kind of like an onomatopoeia. Kaku just sounds bad, right? In an oppressive, harsh, mean, cruel way, Pharaoh dealt with Israel before Israel goes to the promised land. Moses He's just devastated. He, he leaves Egypt. He thinks he's gotten away from the problem, and God visits him, reminds him of the problem, and says, come on, Moses, I'm going to use you, and I promise you that Moses does not want to go back. 
that's the furthest place on the earth that he wants to go is back to Egypt. He's probably begging God saying, please God, no, take my life. Don't send me back there. I do not. And God says, come on, we're going. And he goes and God uses Moses in such a an enormous, powerful way to lead the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage into the promised land, but it was all preceded with pain. I think about Stephen, blessing. One moment he's pummeled with rocks by angry countrymen, and then the next moment he stands in the presence of the rock of ages. So pain, God uses it. We hate it. But God uses it as a platform, and then also it is it, its severest, right on the brink of a breakthrough. So let me, let me share this with you. Please don't give up on God. You could be very, very close to an incredible breakthrough. God could be about to do something that he has never done in your life, and it's going to be amazing, miraculous, spectacular. But first, he's got to take you through the valley on your way to the mountain. And, and let me just share this with you, Great Hills Baptist Church. If he did that for Abraham and Moses and Joseph and Jesus, what makes you think he's not going to do that to you or me? Mike, Mike Miracle, God bless you. I told you this morning I was going to quote you. Mike said, well, I hope it's good. What, what did I say? And I said, well, it is. It's amazing. Many times Mike has made this statement. In the midst of your pain, do not miss what God's trying to tell you. Don't miss it. When Mike first told me that, I didn't like that. I didn't want to, don't miss. What are you talking about? I'm hurting. I'm sorry. Don't miss. Don't miss what God is trying to tell you when you're laying on your back. Don't miss God in the midst of the crucible of painful circumstances because he loves you so much. He is working. He is working his master plan. If you would just look up and be patient, be silent, quit fussing, quit complaining, quit arguing and just say, God, I do not want to miss you. Teach me, oh God. I humble myself under the mighty hand of God. Please teach me. I, I could give you so many examples. Mike, would you take a bottle of water and just please throw it at me, okay? Just not hard, please, but just, just toss it. Let me see if I can catch it, all right? All right, thank you. Please, let's just hold on just a second. That's wonderful. Thank you, Lord. All right. I could give you so many examples, but let, let me give you this one. Stephen Curtis Chapman, he has won five Grammy Awards. That's amazing. To win one Grammy is amazing. He won five. He's kind of a, like a genius of a songwriter. When Mercy Me, uh, Bart Miller was trying to get some, a, a new album together, he just ran out of words. And he called, he called Stephen Curtis Chapman. And Stephen Curtis Chapman said, words? He goes, I've got so many songs, I'll never sing them all. Let me give them to you. And so he did. And those went on Mercy Me's last album. Pretty amazing guy. But Stephen Curtis Chapman said, there was an event in my life that happened. And it made me question 
everything I knew to be true about God. In fact, like a C.S. Lewis moment, I didn't know which way I was going. Stephen Curtis Chapman and his wife, they've adopted three children and they have three children. One day they were getting ready, it was such a festive time. I think they were going to a, a party that was going to celebrate the announcement of of the wedding of one of his children. Another child, I think, was, was going to another event. It was such an exciting time. Things were happening time. And their 18-year-old son quickly backed out of their driveway and ran over his five-year-old sister and killed her. And killed her. I thought, oh, I remember this happened. I was like, what in the world? And Stephen Kershaw said it, it devastated us. And I began to question, does God even exist? But he said, in my crucible of pain, God came to me and he revealed himself to me in ways that I never would have learned. In fact, he wrote a whole nother album based on this experience. And when he came out, then he was on Good Morning America. And then Larry King Live asked to speak with him. And then People Magazine did a feature, feature story on him. And so on all of those venues, all those opportunities, he had an opportunity to say, yes, this pain almost crushed us. But can I tell you that God is faithful, that God brought me through every horrible circumstance, and I praise him. Next thing I want to share with you along these lines of, of pain and Israel and Moses and Joseph and Abraham and all of it, Stephen, all tied together, is this. God works outside our boundaries or parameters. Now, I want you to hold on to this thought because I, I believe this is from the Lord. And I wish I could take credit for it, but it was in my research, reading commentaries and studying what other people had said about this text that God began to speak to me and say, look at this. These people that you have great respect for, they have found a nugget. They have found a precious jewel in this pericope, in this paragraph, in this story, and you need to share it with your people. And here it is. God works outside our boundaries and parameters. Verse 25 says, they did not understand. Verse 35 says, this Moses whom they rejected. And so Stephen is going to associate the Sanhedrin with their forefathers. You forefathers don't understand, and you've rejected Jesus because Jesus was different. And, and here's, here's the thing that's very interesting. God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia he used Joseph, stay with me, mightily in Egypt, and Moses was in Midian when God found him. What do all three of those places have in common? They are not Israel. Well, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. You saying? Yeah. God's bigger than the Holy Land. God's bigger than Israel. And if God wants to do something earth-shattering, like send His only Son to die on a cross, then blessed be the name of God. 
because God works. He works in the miraculous. He does things way outside of our comfort zone. And by all means, don't miss him. Your forefathers missed him because they couldn't see, they, they, they couldn't understand Mo Moses. Y'all remember Moses, how they treated him? I mean, there were times he's like, God, just please kill me. They're killing me. I, they, let them just, let, can we just go back, to, go back to Egypt? These people are driving me insane. And they rejected him. They said, get away from us. We'd rather go back to Egypt. And God was like, Moses was like, oh God, please help me. What in the world have I got myself? And Stephen's reminding them of that. He's saying, that's, that's what y'all have done. You did that to Isaiah. You did that to Jeremiah. You did that to Moses. You've done this to all the prophets of God, and now you've done it to Jesus. F.F. Bruce says, far from the frontiers of the Holy Land has God done his work. Sometimes when God does a new thing, those who oppose him the most are the people that they say they love him the most. Richard Lagenecker says this, and it's an interesting quote, so won't you stay with me? He writes, Stephen's speech, the primary purpose, seems rather to be that of making the vital point. Contrary to the popular piety of the day in its veneration of the Holy Land, no place on earth, even though given as an inheritance by God himself, can be claimed to possess such a sanctity or be esteemed in such a way as to preempt God, preempt God's further working on behalf of his people. By this method, Stephen was attempting to clear the way for the proclamation of the centrality of Jesus in the nation's worship, their life, and their thought. I tell you, people a lot smarter than me found this. I didn't find this, I'm just sharing it with you. That just as the forefathers and the people of Israel rejected Moses, or just as his brothers threw Joseph into the pit, because they couldn't see, and, 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 and they couldn't see because of unbelief. Have you ever noticed that? When people can't see because of unbelief, they sometimes turn violent, or they turn cruel, because they can't see that there's a bigger, greater work that God is doing, because they have God confined in a box, in a small box, the God of the universe, like, yeah, okay, let me, let me squeeze in this box y'all got here for me. No! He is this awesome, omnipotent God. He will never do anything that is sinful. He will never do anything that is contrary to his word. But our God is an awesome, creative God, and he's always doing new, amazing things. I just hope we don't miss him. Here's a wonderful line that I want to share with you from a man by the name of William Cooper. And please don't worry, I don't share everything I study. Some of you are beginning to doubt that. You're like, well, everything you study, you think it's so good, you think we all need to hear it. Well, not everything, but a lot of things. And I, I want you to hear this. He spells it C-O-W-P-E-R, William Cooper, like Vincent Van Gogh, was a man tormented with anxiety, uh, depression, 
he was, he was bipolar before we even knew what bipolar was and without medication because this is 1731. Born in England, died in 1800, trained as a lawyer, a brilliant man, a gift, so gifted, but he was so racked with depression and anxiety and even anxiety and insanity. He tried to kill himself three times. But then somebody told him, they said, William, there's hope for you. And we believe that God can take your great mind, your genius, the prodigy that you are, and God can use all of these gifts for His glory. We want to introduce you to a man named, y'all ready for this? John Newton. John Newton just happens to be the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace, a former slave trader who got saved and in fact, they introduced the two men, and, and Newton said, William, I know you're hurting, and I know you're struggling. Why don't you come live with me? I say, what? So he did. He moved in with the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace, stayed a year with him, and the two collaborated, <laughs> and they created a, a hymn book. The two of them did. Just to tell you a little bit more about Cooper, here's his mind. 1791, he translates all of Homer's Odyssey and Iliad from Greek to English. How would you like to do that in, in just a, in a few days' time? Well, I just think I'll translate all of this in, from Greek to, to English. Brilliant mind. But listen to these quotes. Oh, he, this, this guy's mind is so gifted and so brilliant. When, when you look at what some of the things he said, let, let me get one of them you know. One of them you absolutely know. If you know anything about hymnody and hymnology, if you know some of the old hymns, you, you will recognize this. But the others you don't know, and I get to share it with you. I get to share it with you. That's right. I'm excited about that. Okay. The name of the hymn, by the way, is Jesus, Wherever Thy Peoples Meet. Jesus, wherever thy people meet... There they behold thy mercy seat. Wherever they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. Every place where God is, is hallowed ground. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And every sinner plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Woo, son. How about this one? Where is it? Oh, well, here it is. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Mercy. That's good. Oh, let me finish this quote. Wherever they Seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground, for thou within no walls confined, you inhabit the most humble mind. Man. 
See, that's just like God to take a painful situation, redeem it for His glory, and to do something that is far beyond what we've ever seen or imagined. And Stephen knows this. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he recounts these magnificent, epic moments in the Old Testament history. And by the way, he is lecturing to the lecturers. He is teaching the professors. And if you, if you know anything about sometimes professors and intellectuals and erudite people are pretty proud of themselves. It's very rare to find a brilliant professor who's humble. If you find one, allow that person to mentor you and, and encourage you. If you're in the university and the college, seriously, it's very, very rare. And the last thing I want to share with you is this. God selects what man rejects. All throughout this passage of Scripture, Stephen gives us examples. They rejected Moses. They said, we, we, who are you to be our deliverer? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And then when they start their processional out of Egypt and they come on into the promised land, well, I wish you just let us, let us die. I wish you just let us die in Egypt because at least in Egypt we had something to eat. They hated, they, they hated the very guy that God had chosen, just like Joseph's brothers, just like Moses, just like Jesus. But Stephen, he, he gets it. And one writer puts it this way, Moses humbled himself by leaving Pharaoh's palace and Jesus humbled himself by becoming man. Moses was rejected at first and so was Jesus. Moses was the shepherd, Jesus is the good shepherd. Moses redeemed his people from the bondage in Egypt. Jesus redeems them from the bondage to sin. The history of Moses foreshadows the history of Jesus. Belief in God always precedes accomplishing great things for God and enjoying the favor of God. The Sanhedrin. I know what the Sanhedrin were thinking. I can think like a religious scholar and miss God. But here's my prayer. All the learning and all the education that God has given to me, I pray that I would give it all in a heartbeat if for one moment it would remove me from a close, intimate walk with God. You, give, me, give me a choice. Anybody? Give me the choice. I will give you a great mind, a scholarly mind, nor I'll give you a hot heart for Jesus. Man, give me the heart every single time. A heart that is warmed by the presence of Jesus. A heart that is not proud or arrogant or missing God, but a heart that is, that is yielded, that is humble, that is say, God, more than anything else, I want you and I do not want to miss you. The Sanhedrin, I know, I know these people. And I think this is what they're saying. God could never you listen to me, Stephen, before we kill you, let me just tell you this. God would never, he would never 
humbled himself to be born of some, who, what's her name, Mary, Mary, a peasant, Joseph the carpenter. God Almighty Yahweh would never, never be born in a stable. He would never allow himself to be crucified on a cross. Our God would never do that because God's never done that before. And then they miss God. Here's the thing that I want to I leave you with. I'm leaving you with a lot before I go on my mission trip. I want you to ponder this and think about this. Oh, here it is, here it is, here it is. And I, then I'm done, right? You say, amen. Why are you about wearing me out, brother? I tell you, it's just wearing me out. There's too much. There's too much here. Just here, hear me, hear me out. Pain, God uses pain. It's a platform that, that he exalts us and he promotes us. Pain is hardest right before the breakthrough. God, he works outside of the boundaries and the parameters of anybody. And it just seems that God has a proclivity for selecting the very people and the very things that mankind rejects. Watch this. This is it. If you believe it. If you believe it. But if you don't believe it, then you can dismiss all of what we've been talking about. You can dismiss this theology of theodicy. You can miss this, this doctrine of how God can work outside parameters. God selects the humble and the broken and he uses them for his glory. You can dismiss all of that, but you have to choose to not believe. So I ask you today, where, where and what has God been saying to you in this story? You say, well, we'll be honest with you. I don't really think God said anything to me because I just enjoyed the history lesson. Thank you, Pastor. I, I, there's some things in there that I really didn't understand. And now I know more. And thank you very much. What's, what's for lunch? Amen. Let's go eat. Then I, my life is in vain. No, no, I'm serious. My whole life, in all my study, in all my education, and everything I've poured into this message and into this church is in vain. If we can walk out of here and say, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. God said anything to me. He had to say something. He had to say something. Are you in pain? Are you in suffering? Are you ready to quit? Are you questioning everything you know to be true about God? Then hear this preacher say, don't do it. Because God could just be on the precipice of doing something absolutely amazing and unthinkable in your life. Keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Don't miss God. Miss people, miss out on other things, but don't miss him because he rides above the storm. He plants his foot firmly in the sea. He is above the storm. He is orchestrating. He's orchestrating events that we can't even understand. I'm driving to church today and I'm driving, I'm looking at the sun. It's breaking through the clouds and God's speaking to my heart and he's saying, look, look at those rays of sun. They're just beaming upon earth. You can see them because I've removed the clouds. But just because the, just because the clouds are there does not mean the sun has ceased to shine. Is that for anybody? 
What about this one? Oh, let me think if I can remember it. What happens when you get old? You forget stuff. Okay. So I thought you were done. I lied. So let me. Says wrong to lie. I'm sorry. Here it comes. And then I promise this is it. Then we're then we're done. Mark DeMoss pastors this church called the Mosaic Church in Arkansas. And I heard him say these words. I tell you, if you ever go on a run and you want something to help pass the time, listen to podcasts or it helps, it really helps you. He said the method that the church used to reach people in the past included a lot of words. But if we're going to reach this generation it better include a lot of actions and a lot of compassion and acts of mercy and acts of justice. Man, God is work, and I'm so grateful. I know you're like me. You don't want to miss him. You want to be right in line with him. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it's so rich. It's so rich we can't even begin to exhaust the treasures that are embedded in it. Lord, we think we're just going to read a sermon. We're going to read a message by a good man named Stephen. But my, 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 lo and behold, there's this double entrada. There's this interesting dynamic going on where we think it might be just a history lesson. But God, your man, Stephen, is given a beautiful foreshadowing of, of Jesus as he's predicted in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. Lord, thank you for a guy like Stephen. I look forward to meeting him in heaven one day. What a man. What a martyr. What a man of God. Lord, who is it today at Great Hills Baptist Church that you put this message on me so hard and heavy? I, it was like a fire, Lord, within my bones. I had to release it. I had to give it. And whoever it is, Lord, thank you that you loved them so much that you would give me this message just for them, just for her, who's on the brink of quitting, walking away from her marriage, walking away from everything she knows to be right, and yet God says, don't do it. Don't miss what I have for you. For the person, Lord, struggling with cancer, with pain, and just can't get through the hurt and the agony of it, and and Lord, you come, you come inside of that moment and you give words of reassurance and comfort that you're the God who heals, or you're the God that's going to heal us here, or you're the God that's going to heal us there. Lord, I pray for Great Hills Baptist Church, Lord, with all of our great history and all those glory days in the past, I just pray in Jesus' name. Whatever you want to do, Lord, be it new, be it old, be it something unforetold, I pray, God, we would do it. We would see it. And we would allow you to color outside of our boundaries and outside of our parameters and our walls. God, whatever you want to do, Lord, do it. Use, use us, oh God. Use me. Use our church. Lord, I pray for hearts to be just soft in the presence of God. Maybe, maybe somebody's here today, Lord, and the very, very first time they realize the paradox, the irony that is Christianity. 
And that, Lord, today is the day of salvation. They repent, they believe, they say, I'm in. I'm, I'm in. I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ today. So, Lord, we pray that you'd bless our invitation as we stand in your honor, as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I do invite you to stand and sing with us. God bless you as you come.